I'm sorry, Dumbledore. I'm afraid I can't sort that. You're listening to the Quibbler Podcast, the Harry Potter book club that has become self-aware. Hem! Hem! Thank you, Headmaster, for those kind words of welcome. Well, it is lovely to be back at Hogwarts, I must say, and to see such happy little faces looking back at me. The Ministry of Magic has always considered the education of young witches and wizards to be of vital importance. I am very much looking forward to getting to know you all, and I'm sure we'll be very good friends. I'm Heather Price, right? And I'm Alex Dallenberg. And we are not a computer. But we are, this is cool, on episode 50 of The Quibbler. That is crazy. It's absolutely nutballs. I can't no, believe we it's made it. Nu- it's, it's nutballs. nutballs. <laughs> I can't believe we made it this far. It is bananas. We're only halfway through. Yes. We did the calculations. By, and... Yeah, by my calculations, we have about 47 episodes left. Well, that's crazy and a lot. And If probably... we just do the books. If yeah. there's not like specials or anything, at the rate we're going, there's 47 episodes left. Okay. Well, that's cool. But anyway, guys, we're halfway through the series, which is shocking because we're also five books through a seven book series. (laughs) Um, But this part's long as fuck. And yeah, episode 50. So thank you for being along for the ride all this way. Yep. This is amazing. I absolutely am shocked. I can't believe that this is like maintained any momentum for 50 episodes. So thank you. We really appreciate your continued listening and support and good vibes we realize you have a choice of harry potter podcasts and we thank you for choosing the quibbler (laughs) maybe you're not choosing maybe you're listening to a bunch that also makes that's fine that also makes perfect sense so this week we are continuing with harry potter and the order of the phoenix with the chapters the sorting hat's new song and professor umbridge In this episode 50 of the Quibbler podcast, you will hear spoilers and cursing. You will also hear some adult themes. This week's adult themes are standardized testing, anger management, independent contractors, theory versus praxis, and bandwagon fans. Dear Alex, what happened this week in this week's chapters we finally make it back to hogwarts the sorting ceremony commences and the hat has a special extra long song this year delving into the history of the school and how there was turmoil from the very beginning but the houses need to stand together because there are external foes that are threatening the school and the hat also questions the endeavor which is its life's purpose, if it is indeed alive, which I don't know, is it? The hat's like, I have some reservations about sorting, but I am a sorting hat, so we're going to do this. So (laughs) the hat has become self-aware as well. Ron is a dick to Sir Nick. Everybody's discussing what the hat has said, and Ron's mouth is full of food, and Nick can't really understand him. And Nick is trying to tell him about how the hat has, at various times in Hogwarts history, warned about danger ahead. And Ron says something about Nick not having any blood and other, like, basically Ron gets, like, ableist with a ghost. (laughs) And, (laughs) And Nick's like, I can use a figure of speech, right? 
and he kind of storms off. But not before saying that the Hogwarts ghosts are all friends, even Sir Nick and the Bloody Baron, despite the rivalry between Gryffindor and Slytherin, so... Which is a bald-faced lie. I don't know, they still seem to hang out. No, everyone's just afraid of the Bloody Baron. Alright, so maybe Sir Nick is, uh... Exaggerating. Yeah, alright. He should quit while he's ahead, I guess. (laughs) Oh, burn! Poor Uh. Sir Nick. So now I am insulting Sir Nick, which is not right. Dumbledore starts to deliver his beginning-of-term announcements when he is interrupted by the new Defense Against the Dark Arts teacher, but 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 motherfucking Dolores Umbridge, who has got off the train at Hogsmeade Station with a nightmare and her cardigan. Oh, God. Welcome to the school of food excess. Is she gonna fit in? Jumped in the carriage. Here she is for the second time. Look to her right, and she sees one of those flying boar guys. This is all so crazy. Everybody seems so magic. Her tummy's turning, and she's feeling kind of homesick. Too much pressure, and she's nervous. That's when McGonagall comes in with the sorting hat, and the sorting song comes on. I can't believe you wrote that whole thing. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't my best work, but... It, uh... It was not, in fact. But thank you. It was admirable. She's got her wand up, and they're singing her song. (laughs) Oh, God. And the butterflies fly away. What a dated reference. It's a party in the UK. (laughs) Anyway, Umbridge interrupts Dumbledore with a vague speech about how she's standing athwart history, yelling, stop. Little William Buckley reference. Yeah, serious deep tracks. Founding editor of the National Review uh, and an architect of intellectual conservatism. Hermione reads between the lines of this extremely vague speech and says, Whoa, this is bad. The ministry is interfering at Hogwarts. Everybody pounds some more food. Harry heads back up to his amazingly comfortable four-poster bed. The password this year is Mimbulus Mimbletonia, so Neville can remember. That's good. Once Harry's back in his dorm, he and Seamus have a row because Seamus' mom almost didn't send him back to Hogwarts this year because she's been reading in the Daily Prophet about how Dumbledore is losing his mind and Harry is spreading rumors about the return of the Dark Lord and is basically a crackpot. So Harry says, "Uh, your mom's like dumb or something like that. And Seamus is like, don't have a go at my mom and... Basically, Ron intervenes and says he believes Harry, and Neville says he believes Harry as well. So, everyone goes to bed angry, basically. And you're never supposed to go to bed angry. You can if you want. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) And there's been a lot of mutterings in general about Harry around Hogwarts. I guess Lavender Brown is also skeptical of Harry's story. Hermione says, this is making Harry extremely grumpy. Fred and George are looking for freelance workers to test Skyving snack boxes and other products. They have an ad up in the Gryffindor common room, basically advertising for part-time work. Uh, Later at breakfast, Hermione presses them about this and tries to enlist Ron's help as her fellow prefect, but Ron is, Ron's a little reluctant to go there with his brothers. So, anyway, they change the subject and say, Yeah, Hermione, well, you're gonna want a Skyving snack box because fifth year is seriously fucked up. 
because you're studying for your OWLs, Ordinary Wizarding Levels, the standardized test that will affect your career trajectory in the wizarding world. Although, let's be real, 90% of them are going into the Ministry of Magic because there doesn't appear to be much of a private sector. A bunch of owls show up and get everyone's breakfast wet because it's rainy outside. There's just, like, owl residue, like, falling onto the breakfast tables, I Ew. realized. Like, this is unsanitary. Yeah, owls should gross. not... It's kind of weird that owls show up where everyone is eating breakfast to deliver mail. Because, you know, birds, they're not known for, like, holding it in, right? Also, like, you're going to get bird flu or some shit. Owl <laughs> flu. Owl flu. <laughs> Hermione gets a copy of the Daily Prophet. Despite the Daily Prophet's propaganda campaign against Harry and Dumbledore, Hermione is keeping up with it because she, like, wants to get out of her liberal bubble or whatever. The first day of classes suck. History of magic is super boring. Hermione threatens to cut off Harry and Ron from copying her notes. They learn about the giant wars. Ron cockblocks Harry between classes. Cho shows up and clearly wants to talk to Harry alone. And then Ron immediately dresses her down for wearing a... What's the team name? The Thunderbolts or something like that? It's not the Thunderbolts. No, it's the... the Thunder somethings. It's the Thundercats. The Thundercats. I cannot remember the name of this team. The Tornadoes. Yeah. It's the Tornadoes. Ron is pissed that Cho has a Tornadoes badge on her robes because they're just getting good this year and he thinks that everyone's bandwagoning them. So Cho leaves sort of annoyed with Ron. And also, her... Cho's been a fan since she was a little girl. Yeah, so she's been a fan. Fuck off, yeah, Ron. Cho's like, I've been a fan since I was six, but I don't know. The tornadoes are like the Lakers or whatever, and Ron hates them. So, or the I guess the Yankees would be a better comparison. I don't know. No, not even because the Yankees have like always been pretty good, and now there's no. They're like the Warriors. Yeah, the tornadoes are like the Golden State Warriors, and Ron is annoyed that all of a sudden there's a bunch of people that are like rockin' Steph Curry jerseys. So, we do sports on the Quibbler. Um, Hermione and Ron get into it because Hermione points out that Cho's obviously trying to talk to Harry and Ron didn't pick up on that because Ron is unable to read social cues. Snape's class is also terrible. They're making, like, wizard Xanax or something. The draft of peace. Snape makes Harry throw out his potion because he doesn't put in syrup of hellebore. So Harry is in an exceptionally good mood by the time they get to lunch and lashes out at Ron and Hermione once more for constantly bickering. Those two should get together. Ron and yeah, Hermione. Yeah, <laughs> it definitely makes total sense. They, that despite the fact that they cannot be around each other without being dickheads. They should fall in love and be together they forever. They definitely seem like... Oh, yeah. Some well <laughs> suited as a successful romantic couple. They definitely seem like they wouldn't get divorced. He's just picking on you because he likes you. <laughs> Fuck that narrative. Trelawney's class is also meh. They're analyzing dreams. Harry doesn't really want to get into his dreams because they're always about fucked up shit. Like almost getting murdered. And then it's time for Defense Against the Dark Arts with Professor Umbridge. Wolf. Everything that can go wrong does go wrong in this class. Umbridge 
starts off with this whole speech about how they've been receiving substandard education and that they're going to be only learning practical defensive theory by studying uh, the book Defensive Magical Theory by Wilbert Slinkhard. Hermione, to Ron's surprise, doesn't even open the book, but raises her hand and immediately gets into it with Professor Umbridge about why they won't be practicing actual magic. Practical magic, if you will. <laughs> to which Umbridge insists, you won't be attacked. Harry says, how do you know? Lord Voldemort is fucking back. And Professor Umbridge has clearly just been like, waiting for this moment. She's like, hell yes, this is what I live for. Voldemort is not back. The Ministry says so. You are a liar. Anyone who tells you otherwise, children, please come see me after class. She gives Harry detention and sends him to Professor McGonagall's class. Also, there's like this kind of mini rebellion because all the kids want to learn how to actually use magic, not just read about it in a book and then like attempt it later, never actually having practiced it when it's time for OWLs. Uh, Harry is sent to Professor McGonagall's with a note. McGonagall does not dress down Harry, but offers him a biscuit from a tartan tin. McGonagall's definitely got an aesthetic and says... You have to be careful around Dolores Umbridge. You know where she comes from. You know who she's reporting to. That is Cornelius Fudge, the Minister of Magic. So keep on your toes. Also, you still have to do detention. Hope nothing bad happens there. And that's what happens in this week's chapters. Can I just say I'm really glad we're back at Hogwarts? Yeah, Hogwarts is really like where these books shine. I mean, the other stuff is interesting, but I'm, like, always a little bit antsy in the, in this case, like, eight chapters before, <laughs> before we actually get back to school. And that's, that's one of people's biggest complaints with book seven, right? Is you never get back there, and it's, like... Well, until it matters, like, the most. Well, yeah, but, I mean, a lot of it is kind of, like, formless and blotchy. Fair but enough, yeah. But, point being, it's great to be back. We learn more about Hogwarts's history, which is really interesting, from the crazy off-book sorting hat. And at last there came a morning when old Slytherin departed, and though the fighting then died out, he left us quite downhearted. And never since the founders four were whittled down to three have the houses been united as they once were meant to be. And now the sorting hat is here, and you all know the score. I sort you into houses, because that is what I'm for. But this year I'll go further, listen closely to my song. Though condemned I am to split you, still I worry that it's wrong. Though I must fulfill my duty and must quarter every year, still I wonder whether sorting may not bring the end I fear. Oh, know the perils, read the signs, the warning history shows, for our Hogwarts is in danger from external deadly foes. And we must unite inside her or we'll crumble from within. I have told you, I have warned you, let the sorting now begin. The AI of this thing is fucking crazy. Because, <laughs> like, for a while, you just think, like, okay, it's really clever. It, like, is programmed to, like, come up with rhymes about, like, the different, like, 
facets of the houses and like who belongs where but it turns out no it can think for itself yeah it's not just programmed to describe the various features of the hogwarts houses it is in fact a sentient thing yeah and the hat the hat says in no uncertain terms i am uncomfortable with the concept of sorting at yeah. this point. I must do it, but I wish I hadn't. I didn't have to, basically. What's like, whoa! Yeah. How this isn't making, like, more waves, I'm not sure. The sorting hat basically says, I sort you under duress. Yeah. Well, also, like, God, if I were in that hall and I was a Hufflepuff, I would just feel like shit. Oh, yeah. Because multiple <laughs> times the sorting hat is like, and how a Hufflepuff was like, honestly, I'll take the rest. Yeah, the rest. The like, other ones. The other ones. The other ones. It's smart, brave, snakes, and other, which is a reference to the very good off-Broadway show Puffs about exactly these characters. But Hufflepuff is basically just like, the ones the other houses didn't want, which doesn't seem true. Like, there's great Hufflepuffs. It's like... Oh, they're hard workers. Sometimes the hat, like, leaves that out. They're hard workers. They're loyal. They're kind. They're good-hearted. But basically, Helga Hufflepuff is like, yeah, I'll take what you won't. Which is fucked up, if you're a Hufflepuff, to be told that. But Helga, I think the hat thinks is the best founder. But I don't think he thinks that those are the best kids. <laughs> Well, another confusing thing is that Gryffindor is like, I will take the one who have brave deeds to their name. And it's like, bro, they're 10. I, this was a thousand years ago, I guess. Kids fought mat- in war. Matured faster? I don't know. But uh, I mean, they didn't mature just... faster biologically. But, you know, they had like more serious shit to do in the year uh, 900 or whatever. It still seems like you're not giving them a ton of chance to prove what kind of person they are before you're like, let me take the valiant ones. It's like, <laughs> these kids have mostly like carried water. Yeah. Give me the bravest 11 year olds you can find. I think the hat's also looking for potential too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I get that. But Gryffindor himself is like the ones who have com- like who have done brave shit. Well, anyway, the fucking sorting is what it is. We've like hashed that out multiple times, but... It's interesting, we get another one of these glimpses into the founding of Hogwarts, which was pretty dysfunctional. Yeah. So we had this group of four super friends. Who hated each other within a year. Yeah. And And they still fucking founded the school. (laughs) Well, they founded the school first, and then, like, tensions arise, right? It always reminds me, and I think I mentioned this back in the Chamber of Secrets episodes, it always reminds me of like, post-constitutional convention when all of a sudden the Federalists and the Democratic Republicans are, like, at each other's throats. Like, as soon as the ink dries, basically, you've got the Jeffersonians and the Hamiltonians. Jefferson Salazar Slytherin, right? And Gryffindor is Hamilton. Yeah, and, like, who's, like, Adams? I don't know. Adams is Ravenclaw? Okay, and who's Hufflepuff? Who's the other one? The rest of them. Everybody whose names we don't really remember. Yeah, Uh, Hufflepuff's like Elbridge Jerry or something like that. Uh, Well, so the Sorting Hat has this warning that like, oh, if we don't stand together, we'll fall apart. And it's like, that's hard for me to reckon with the reality of the situation, which is that I think it's too broken for them to really stand together. Like, What was fucked from the beginning? They were having like duels in... 
the first year of Hogwarts between the various houses immediately hated each other. Yeah, it's really unrealistic for the Sorting Hat to be like, we shall unite and we shall be one Hogwarts. And it's like, we really, really, really won't. And they don't. They don't. Ever. Ever. Literally ever. That's one of my biggest, one of my biggest complaints. I know I've like harped on this before. I would have loved to see a Slytherin anti-hero. We get good and good-ish Slytherins, but they're, they're always adults. I would like to see... Malfoy. Yeah, but he's never... I'm talking about more like... This is just my own personal desire of what I'd like to see in this book, in which case I guess I should just go write like a fan fiction, right? I'm talking about more like, like a frenemy type, you know? Like a Lando Calrissian character who's like, might be bad, but then turns out to be good. Yeah, I see what you mean. Yeah. Well, and regardless of the existence or non-existence of like one character like that, there isn't ever clear Hogwarts reunification. Right. To the point that in Cursed Child, like the exact same petty rivalries are still like playing into the day-to-day lives of the Golden Trio's children decades later right and they still all hate Slytherin and then they have a kid in Slytherin and it's like a big fucking deal and it's like wow you guys had the battle of Hogwarts and it didn't occur to you to like maybe rejigger how this worked (laughs) and like perhaps like have some school like you said last week like some truth and reconciliation across across the schoolhouses because the Slytherins it turned out were literally all evil I mean this hat this hat has, like, the most moral authority of anyone at the school. He's been around since the beginning. It's like if we had fucking, like, George Washington's, like, tri-corner hat could, like, give us dispatches from the revolution, right? Then we'd know what the founding fathers were actually thinking. Yeah, the Supreme Court would function a lot yeah, better. I, I would actually argue that's not, that would not be great to be taking orders from George Washington's hat because, you know, times change and uh, George Washington, like, wasn't perfect for, like, extremely obvious reasons. But, you know, the hat has, like, been around. It's got some experience. It rarely gives warnings. And here it is saying, you guys need to hang together. And Ron and Harry instantly, like, scoff at it and are like, get along with the Slytherins? Fuck that. Yeah. Give the hat a little more credence, man. No, I think the hat doesn't have any credence because I think the hat is wrong about the possibility of this happening. I think the hat is overly optimistic about the ability of this school to function holistically. I'm a mega pessimist about this, but it's impossible. What do you think Rowling's trying to say by that? I actually think this is a kind of a moment where her moral universe is kind of simplistic. Because I think she's like agreeing with the hat. She's like, we should all come together. And it's like, okay, but you've created a totally dysfunctional world in which, like, that's not going to happen. Does she agree with the Sorting Hat here? Because the Slytherins are never brought back into the fold, except for a few exceptions. But certainly not the Slytherin students. Yeah, I, I guess, guess that's kind true. of kind of Malfoy. Like no, a Malfoy. Bit. Like, they become, like, grudging friends as adults. Yeah, all right, fair enough. Malfoy is redeemed. Malfoy was redeemable and redeemed. But overall, like, yeah, I think this is a simplistic take. I think, I also think that the idea of unity is a fairly simplistic take. Well, unity is like a surrender of freedom of conscience in a way. You know, because Umbridge is asking for the same thing. She's like, everybody just get on board. And get on board is not a high moral calling. Right, you need... Dissent. Yeah, you need... In that way, Hogwarts works really well because there's tons of dissent. Well, yeah, but you also need to, like, scrub out the elements of, like, 
actual evil in your culture, which Hogwarts never does. And like, which is really hard to do and I think can lead to like some authoritarianism that's really challenging. It's complicated. But I think unity is not a particularly high moral calling in this particular case. Well, I always got the impression that if you got rid of Slytherin, like the fucking school would like literally fall apart at the seams because it was magically constructed right, by all four Right, because he them. cursed it. <laughs> which no, is no, like, they needed their four powers combined to make the school, right? So if you remove one, you can't have the school. So you right. have this like kind but, of so it's like dark hostage. dread that has to be reckoned with. Yeah, I mean, and that's kind of cool and interesting, but... I just think the hat's call for like, we shall stand united is like really naive. It's good that the hat is saying like, look, some shit that is real is going down. And like, you guys aren't going to be able to face it if you're infighting. But at the same time, like the hat doesn't give any examples of how you fucking stop that infighting considering that you're infighting with evil people. I mean, the hat's only got like five minutes on the agenda. Yeah, I know. It's just not the hat's fault. But in terms of like the overall like, perspective here do you know what's doing a better job then at this point what the fucking goblet of fire yeah fuck the goblet so then we get this speech from professor umbridge who interrupts dumbledore yeah that's a great choice by Rowling because it shows just how brazen she is because nobody would interrupt dumbledore yeah but she knows that she like have any authority over her in it's reality a power play. it's a huge it's a power, great play. power play so Ron and Harry have no rhetoric skills whatsoever. (laughs) They just like, it goes right in one ear and out the other. And like, to be fair, it's a really boring speech, but you're just sitting there thinking like, maybe if you guys had language arts class, you would be able to do some like interpretation here and do some like, maybe some close reading of what the fuck she's saying. Yeah, Hermione has to explain the implications of what they've just heard. And the implications are pretty scary. What do we think Umbridge's worldview is here? This is one of the most like blatantly political moments of the book so far, since here we have this villain laying out the basics of a very conservative philosophy. By which we don't mean politically conservative. Like, we don't mean Republican. Right. We mean, like, very maintain the status quo with small innovations for the sake of keeping things in check. Yeah, she basically is someone who believes that old orders are valuable, like old kind of like hierarchies and orders are valuable, that it is less important to learn and grow as a culture than it is to maintain the kind of structures that have gotten us this far. I mean, the other thing that is interesting about Professor Umbridge is that she, this is where Heather talks about gender. (laughs) She adheres to these really stringent and specific gender norms in a way that I actually find really problematic and like a kind of a sign of internalized misogyny in J.K. Rowling because she does this with a lot of characters like Lavender Brown is a really good example in book six of characters who are really expressly and sort of stereotypically like hyper feminine being like on the spectrum from like weak to like really authoritarian and bad she does connect this kind of like performative like honeyed hyper femininity to like sinister intentions in a way that I find interesting and ultimately really problematic clearly Dolores Umbridge believes 
in norms and normativity. One of the ways that J.K. Rowling is signaling that is through her feminized speech outfits, overall demeanor, her really high voice, her like girlish laugh, her bows, her pink, her ruffles. The kittens. The kittens, which we see later on. And her very sort of like prim and proper like school marm way of running the class. Like, good morning, Professor Umbridge. All of these are like signaling a certain kind of femininity that J.K. Rowling, I think, sees as really sinister. And on the one hand, that's a really interesting choice because it does like play into this idea of Professor Umbridge as being really beholden to norms. But on the other hand, I think it is anti-feminist because it sort of says that the choice to like adhere to norms or the choice to like have a particular aesthetic as a woman can be like the wrong choice. Well, another thing she's doing here is she's sort of saying at the same time that she's criticizing Umbridge for wearing the frilly pink cardigan and the bow. She's also saying that she doesn't have a right to wear that because she's ugly as fuck. Yeah, it's true. That she doesn't have the right to play into these norms because she's like conventionally unattractive. So Rowling is like, Rowling is also buying into those gender stereotypes as well at the same time that she's trying to critique them, I think. I think it's a really misogynist portrayal. I really do. And I think that what she's trying to do doesn't really land. The other thing that she does is she allows Ron and Harry in particular, but all of the characters to sort of like poke fun at Dolores Umbridge's like aesthetic in a way that it's like, that's not what's important that's wrong with her. Like what Parvati or one of the characters is like, as long as I don't have to borrow that cardigan. And it's like, well, that's just not productive and bitchy. And they are teen <laughs> girls, so yeah, like yeah. fine. But it's, like, part of what's bad about her is her look. And that's just, like, a real shortcoming that J.K. Rowling has as a writer. She does that a lot. Yeah. I wonder how much is intentional and how much is unintentional. Because, you know, the the contrast between her malevolence and the, the simultaneously unthreatening appearance... I think the appearance... No, I think the appearance is meant to signal malevolence. Okay. I think it's like a deliberate choice to say... On Umbridge's part, on the character Umbridge's part. No, on the writer Rowling's part. Okay. I think it says... Because she does exactly the same thing with Lavender Brown. Mm. She characterizes her as not malicious, but her silliness is like weaponized. And J.K. Rowling really looks down on girlishness. Like if you look at all of her really cool, hardcore female characters... They all have really masculine attributes and their weakest kind of like moments are when they are caring about kind of like stereotypically girly things. Right. Like Cho Chang and their like ill-fated trip to the tea parlor is another thing. She's just making fun of Cho. And meanwhile, you have McGonagall who's like has kind of a masculine air about her. You have Hermione, who hangs out with exclusively boys. You have Ginny, who becomes a professional athlete. Tonks, who is an auror. Like, all these, like, women succeeding in a man's game are the female heroes of the series. But women who are, like, feminized, she really looks down on. But then, 
by the time they reach motherhood, then, they're idealized. Right, exactly. So she, does, she like has a... Yeah, there's, like there's this, this gap. gap. Mm-hmm. Totally. Where she's not really into teenage girls and young women, except for... Well, Lily, we see, we understand in the context of her being Harry's mother. But before that, she's basically a sex object for James, James and, and Snape. Snape to fight over. I think Professor Umbridge, like, there's also meant to be something sinister about her being an unmarried and unchilded adult woman. It's all of these, like, tropes that, like, people use to discredit women as, like, selves. And Dolores Umbridge is fucking evil. Like, no defense here of her as a character. It's just really icky to me that she she sort of, like, signals this kind of sinister lightweightness with these, like, trappings of kind of conventional femininity. Like, Psych- all the pink. So, we'll talk more about Umbridge later on in the episode, but that's, like, an aspect of her that I really wanted to get into. Right. Um, so we have this row between Harry and Seamus... What are you asking me for? Harry retorted. Just read the Daily Prophet like your mother. Why don't you? That'll tell you all you need to know. Don't you have a go at my mother? Snapped Seamus. I'll have a go at anyone who calls me a liar, said Harry. Don't talk to me like that. I'll talk to you how I want, said Harry. His temper rising so fast, he snatched his wand back from his bedside table. If you've got a problem sharing a dormitory with me, go and ask McGonagall if you can be moved. Stop your mummy worrying. Leave my mother out of this, Potter. What's going on? Ron had appeared in the doorway. His wide eyes traveled from Harry, who was kneeling on his bed with his wand pointing at Seamus, to Seamus, who was standing there with his fists raised. He's having a go at my mother, Seamus yelled. What? said Ron. Harry wouldn't do that. We met your mother. We liked her. That's before she started believing every word the stinking daily prophet writes about me. Harry really blows an opportunity to use some Yo Mama jokes. I'm glad he blows that opportunity. Yeah. I want him to be a little more mature. (laughs) In general, I think Harry probably could have let this slide a bit more with Seamus, but I'm always wanting Harry to brush it off a bit more in this book, even though I like Moody Harry. But... That's probably an unrealistic expectation for Harry just to, like, let this slide. Well, I'm actually proud of Harry because Harry is actually fighting back actively against this massive gaslighting campaign. Yeah. Harry is, like, putting a stake in in the ground for his own version of reality in a way that I think, like, he should be doing. Okay. And Seamus is being a dick. Well, Seamus comes into it a bit more hesitantly, and then Harry insults his mother. Okay, yeah, which I guess she shouldn't... I guess he shouldn't do, but... Also, she deserves the insult. That's She's true. Being a prat, kind of. <laughs> I I feel bad for Seamus because I I see where he's coming from. You know, he loves his mom. He wants to do right by her. She's uh, got her opinion. I I don't know. Seamus is in a tough spot. He I come, agree that Seamus is in a tough around. spot. But I also believe that Harry has every right to defend his like interpretation and version of reality from like people who are trying to tell him that his experiences are wrong. Right. Harry spends so much of all these books with half the school basically thinking he's evil or delusional. Like, delusional. The thing is, like, that's kind of the price of fame. No, I know. Yeah. I, like, people get to, people project a lot onto your, like, everyday experiences if you're really famous. 
Like, think about how fucking obsessed we get with, like, celebrities who, like, accidentally, like, say the wrong thing. And we're like, oh, like, the party's over. Like J.K. Rowling. Well, yeah. And the thing that Harry is sort of not yet understanding about fame, which is understandable because he's a kid, is that you're, like, you're more responsible for your actions than other people as a famous person. And that's shitty. And I'm not saying it's fair, but it's true. And Harry is, like, not yet at a maturity level where he can, like, take that. And so yeah, he's like, he's not overreacting, but he's reacting with um, really understandable levels of rage to being told that this fucked up thing that happened, not only did this thing happen to him, but now he's being told it didn't. How awful. Poor guy. This is a great opportunity to showcase Neville's quiet heroism because Neville doesn't make a big scene out of it. He just says, I believe Harry. Well, the other thing that I remember here about Neville and that makes me really think he's just a wonderful young man is that Neville, like, has skin in the game in ways that Seamus Seamus and Dean don't. They don't have relatives. Certainly they don't have parents who they lost in the last battle. So Neville really is speaking from a place of wisdom and experience and being really brave considering like what he knows and what he has experienced. I mean, I'm going to quibble a bit on Dean. Dean has the most skin of the game because he's muggle-born, as we learn in book seven. I guess that's true. But he's just not quite well, aware but I of guess the it's stakes not, yet. Fine. He, it's not that he doesn't have skin in the game, but it's he doesn't have that experience yeah. to like lean on. Like He doesn't know what it means for Voldemort to be back because he didn't have his parents tortured almost to death. Yeah, all right. Yes, he. it is scary to be a Muggleborn, but as yet, they don't know how scary. Yeah, that makes sense. But Neville like has this experience to draw on, and he's being really brave by like seeing reality for what it is, despite like how terrifying this prospect is specifically to him given his family background this is a another brave moment to stand up to Seamus here yeah this is why he should be a prefect Neville doesn't love conflict but he's also not afraid of it no he's really not you know in in ways that like even Ron kind of is yeah it's funny how he's portrayed as kind of bumbling and a little cowardly just because he doesn't want Snape to horribly emotionally abuse him but most of the times we see Neville making decisions, he's making pretty tough ones. Yeah, and good ones. Neville's the only one who had the guts to ask out anyone for the ball. I know, and it worked splendidly. Jenny's a catch. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Neville's brave. Neville's reputation is really stupid considering his actual actions. Right. Moving on, the kids are back in classes and they have... The most Monday Monday of all the Mondays <laughs> in this chapter. It sounds like hell. Garfield level Mondaying. Ron and Harry are just cheating their way through school. Yeah. The only reason they've passed History of Magic is they've been copying Hermione's notes for the last four years. Harry needs to pay some more attention here. There's a lot of critical information, I think, being relayed in these classes. I would say Professor Binns in particular is an interesting case because, like, it is his responsibility to make the material, like, palatable for students. Right. He is too boring and that is his fault. But also, like, (laughs) Hermione manages to get through it. I have so many questions about fucking Professor Binns. He's just a fucking ghost. He didn't 
realize he died, which is crazy. And now they just, like, keep him around. Like, does Professor Bins get paid? Maybe it goes to his family? I mean, first of all, do any of them get paid? Because, like, we don't really know the economics of teaching at Hogwarts. Presumably. They're not just, I mean, they're giving room and board, but... But a ghost doesn't need room and board. So, like, (laughs) what are they... Like, what are they giving this guy? Why does he continue to teach? Yeah, they don't need food. It's so bizarre that they have a ghost teacher. Yeah, what is Bins paid? I have more questions about him, but we can't get sidetracked by my (laughs) huge, huge quibbles with the existence of Ghost Professor Bins. Dumbledore is just basically money laundering all of Bins' pay into the candy budget. I mean, probably. (laughs) Does he hang out with the other ghosts? Like, My sense is Bins is so single-mindedly focused on teaching that that is all he does. But the crazy thing is he's such a fucking shitty teacher. Yeah, it's weird. It doesn't make any sense. He should have been fired when he was alive, and I guess now they can just never get rid of him. This seems like a critical subject. History is really important. History is very important. And Dumbledore is not... This is a problem that only the best student, basically in the history of school, Can is able physically to physically stay awake. Yeah. <laughs> in a what? Class. It's a huge problem, and it like comes back to like later on what Professor Umbridge talks about, where it's like, "Bitch, you're not wrong. These are bad teachers. <laughs> There's a lot of bad instruction going on in this school." Oh. Um. So then they have Trelawney's class where they analyze dreams, and again, Harry and Ron are like, "Ooh, that seems stupid." Okay, Harry, who has prophetic dreams. On a semi-regular basis. About Lord Voldemort. Could definitely benefit from studying them more closely. A dream journal? Probably really helpful for Harry Potter, especially in this particular year. Well, this just plays into, like, the extent to which they are so uncurious. (laughs) Like, immediately Harry's like, well, I don't want to talk about my dreams. And it's like, bro, you don't think it might be kind of fucking helpful to know what the long corridor with a locked door at the end of it means? (laughs) Because it turns out it is mission critical to figure out your goddamn dreams. And you're so uncurious. What is he doing here? I mean... I could see him having resistance to it since he is often dreaming about the time he was almost brutally murdered, but... Yeah, uh, and then part of it is Professor Trelawney's pedagogy. She's not very good at, like, drawing out the best in students. (laughs) But still, like, maybe think about how your dreams could be significant considering they have been really significant in the past. You literally saw Lord Voldemort kill poor Frank. She has no use for standardized testing. Which I like. And she's sort of right. Clearly, divination cannot actually be taught. Although, again, and we mentioned this many times in Prisoner of Azkaban, why even teach it then? Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. Again, not good teaching in this school. Snape <laughs> continues to be the ever-living fucking worst. Snape is also lazy. He just writes the Epicurious recipe or whatever for draft of peace on the blackboard and then just sets them at it. He doesn't actually teach much. No, he doesn't do shit. He just shouts at them when they can't read. Which also, like, (laughs) they should read. Yeah, follow directions, man. The other question I have is, okay, they basically have, like, pharmaceuticals here. Yeah. Why don't they fucking use this more? Every single person in this potion class could, like, actually really stand a draft of... Peace. Peace. As could Snape. Oh my god, Snape needs so many antidepressants. Yeah, It's, like, unreal. Or they need to, like, 
mix up some uppers so they can stay awake in Professor Binz's class. Yeah, they're all just doing like wizard coke. Yeah, to, like, get through I mean, there's, Adderall. Yeah, really, there's I no. Guess. Yeah, there's no wizard Adderall to just make them insanely focused on Goblin rebellions for ninety minutes. There must be. Snape just hasn't taught it to them yet. Good lord. Or maybe it's like against the rules to use it. It's weird that students can make their own drugs (laughs) also. (laughs) Because you're right. This is basically Xanax. Yeah. And nobody, again, they're so uncurious. It doesn't occur to any of them to be like, maybe I should like take a little bit of this. Because like, can you imagine if you were like in a muggle high school and they were like, we're going to make meth today. (laughs) Which is basically what they're doing here, except a downer and not an upper. Um, Presumably, it doesn't have the same kind of side effects. Although, we don't know. Who the, who the fuck, fuck knows? It's the wizarding the fuck, yeah, girl. They're not doing like they don't care. They're not. They're not doing like double blind like studies. Yeah, they're of not the effects testing. of these potions. Well, also, they're like, okay, well, good luck because if you do it wrong, it'll kill you. So hopefully, that doesn't happen. <laughs> Goyle's robes get lit on fire. Yeah. Not safe, not okay. School is a disaster as usual. Yeah, in the meantime, as we said earlier, they're not actually learning how to read for context, how to analyze analyze texts. Ron and Harry listen to Umbridge's speech and have no fucking clue what she's saying. No. Even though it's like pretty fucking obvious because Hermione immediately points it out. Well, also, they clearly haven't paid attention to history of magic because they have no sense of like political science. Yeah. (laughs) Like. Or like they don't have like fucking wizard civics class. (laughs) They they, don't understand why Hagrid. Nothing. If they paid attention in History of Magic, they would understand why Hagrid has to be sent to the giants to try to win them over. As like an emissary. Mm -hmm. And and why they might want to align themselves with Voldemort. These are pretty fucking important skills to have if you are fighting a rebellion. They just don't care. All Uh, they want to do is be Aurors. All they want to do is fucking... Which, if you're going to be in law enforcement, you should maybe have a nuanced understanding of the communities that you are policing. Well, my God, we wish, don't we? <laughs> you know, but they're just like, yeah, we just want to become ores to like fuck shit up. Bad reason. Even to Hermione's like, there's other interesting stuff a person can do, <laughs> and they're like, ores make a difference. And meanwhile, all the fucking stakes are really high now because they're taking OWLs. Mm-hmm. What do we think about wizard standardized testing? Well, you and I have really different views on this because, I mean, this is like how they do it over there in the UK. Yeah, they take leveled tests early on like partway through high school to like determine their kind of like and you know guys correct me if I'm like butchering this but what I from what I understand it sort of determines your like aptitude so you can decide like what to do for university and stuff so I think this makes sense like this is like right like on par with how muggle education kind of works yeah you're right I still think it's kind of crazy to have anything you do at 15 years old affect your career prospects but a lot of things I did at 15 years old affected my career prospects I don't know where you went to high school (laughs) I took the PSATs when I was 15 and it's the only reason I could like it's the reason I don't have any student debt I mean like my 15 year old standardized testing made a huge difference in the trajectory of my life yeah i suppose there were things i did at 15 that affected like where i was able to like get into, get school. into college mm-hmm. and stuff yeah even, and if, even if it wasn't as explicitly well also they don't have college so as... this is this is what they like they don't 
have higher education. So this is like where they're making these decisions. It still seems like kind of insane. You're Just right. An interminable apprenticeship after basically after yeah graduating from Hogwarts. Uh, wizards should have higher education, probably. That wizards should have lower education. <laughs> wizards should learn to read. Math. Math. <laughs> reading. History, kind of. They don't really Oh my get... god. Maybe that's the reason Arthur can't handle muggle money. It's not that he doesn't know how it works. It's that he literally can't count. No, I know. And Galleons, he's just gotten, like, adept at kind of, like, I don't know. You're right. <laughs> And then, of course, we're back in Umbridge's classroom. Tut, tut, said Professor Umbridge. That won't do now, will it? I should like you, please, to reply, Good afternoon, Professor Umbridge. One more time, please. Good afternoon, class. Good afternoon, Professor Umbridge, they chanted back at her. There now, said Professor Umbridge sweetly. That wasn't too difficult, was it? Ones away, and quills out, please. Many of the class exchanged gloomy looks. The order, ones away, had never yet been followed by a lesson they had found interesting. Harry shoved his wand back inside his bag and pulled out quill, ink, and parchment. Professor Umbridge opened her handbag, extracted her own wand, which was an unusually short one, and tapped the blackboard sharply with it. Words appeared on the board at once. Defense against the dark arts... A return to basic principles. Well now, your teaching in this subject has been rather disrupted and fragmented, hasn't it? Stated Professor Umbridge, turning to face the class with her hands clasped neatly in front of her. The constant changing of teachers, many of whom do not seem to have followed any ministry-approved curriculum, has unfortunately resulted in your being far below the standard we would expect to see in your OWL year. You will be pleased to know, however, that these problems are now to be rectified. We will be following a carefully structured, theory-centered, ministry-approved course of defensive magic this year. These chapters and, like, really this book, more than we've had before, or no, more than we'll have in the future, is kind of about, like, theories of education yeah, in a way these, that I find really interesting. These, Even though all the books are about school, because it's about a wizard school, this book is the most explicitly about education what it means to like teach and learn Mm -hmm. so umbridge sucks she's a terrible person she's totally fucking right about their experiences in defense against the dark arts (laughs) she's like you have been taught inappropriate things you have been taught things that like had no discernible curricular kind of like sequencing you have been taught by totally unqualified teachers you've been taught by multiple teachers who it turned out were like under the sway in some way of Lord Voldemort himself. She doesn't bring up Lord Voldemort. No, I know, but she brings up, like, you have had teachers who should not have been in a classroom. Yeah. And it's really sinister because she uses a really, really good excuse to do a really, really bad thing. Yes. Right. And this is one of the aspects I like the most about this book. Coming of age, in a lot of ways, is realizing that the things you learn are political. Your education is political and learning to think critically about that and i I like that this book is basically about how hogwarts students have become pawns in this chess match between dumbledore and 
the Ministry of Magic. In a way, Voldemort's not even the main antagonist in this book. He's, he's very much not, actually. No, it's the Ministry. Yeah, and it's he, like... He shows up at the end, and the Ministry's not even doing Voldemort's work for him. No. And that's what I think makes this book so interesting. It is interesting to watch kids realize, like, what you learn, how you learn, who you learn from isn't neutral. Because I think, like, until you reach kind of this age, education feels like a neutral force that is just trying to tell you what's true and what's useful and and, and get you ready to, like, survive in the real world. And I think, first of all, that's less true if you are in any kind of like an oppressed minority children of color learn much younger than white children in the United States that what they are taught and how they're being taught is politicized and is put into a context of a larger and sometimes really um damaging narrative you know like if you're learning history as a Native American child and what you learn is like manifest destiny you're much more likely to understand like okay they're teaching a way of thinking about the world that erases the experiences of my family and my heritage. But it's interesting to watch these kids in this magical world realize like, oh, there's more to how we're taught than just like randomly like this is what you need to know. Up until this point, Harry and Ron, and I think to a lesser extent, Hermione, who was always sort of just clued in to like what's going thinker. on. Yeah, have treated... You treat education like the weather, right? Like, I like my classes, or I don't, or this teacher is boring. And when you become, like, the older you get, the more you realize, like, the story behind it, that your teachers are, like, adults, and they have motives, and they're taking, like, marching orders from people. So it's it's interesting, it's fascinating in this chapter to watch the students being forced to advocate for their own education, which sometimes students are. Yeah, sometimes you have to, like, yeah, you have to fight for your right to be taught as a teenager, which is doesn't feel like how it should be, but unfortunately, yeah, that, that is what happens. Um, where we lived for eight years, it reminds me of the fight over Mexican-American studies in Tucson, Arizona, where the... The school had this really popular La Raza studies program. So, like, important point of context being it was a mostly Hispanic school district. Right. Sort of, like, kids getting to learn about their own history, their own culture. Like, the movements that, like, brought civil rights to their particular communities and stuff. Like, you know, they learned a lot about, like... Yeah, they they learned U.S. history from... The perspective of a Mexican-American or a, a Latino-American, well, Latinx-American. Yeah. And lawmakers in Phoenix did not like this program. Uh, they considered it to be, like, reverse racism in some case. Like, the rhetoric leveled against it was pretty ugly. So they passed a bill banning it, basically. And uh, kids marched for it. And it was, yeah, it was like a serious flashpoint for years and you years. You had s- young people, you had students coming to like school board meetings and doing walkouts and like really, really self-advocating for their right to learn about their history and culture through a lens that was like their own. Yeah, so it, it reminds me a bit of that. And I think a, a court finally struck this law down. It reminds us that kids do 
want to be taught what's important. Right. Well, that's interesting because we've come from a few, in this chapter, we've come from a few classes where Ron and Harry are just being like the most disengaged students. But when it comes down to it, they want to learn. Like they want to be taught. They have a hunger to learn. Well, also like, and this is a fucked up thing about this school, but it's the reality is like self-defense is their most important skill. Yeah. Like defense against the dark arts is the most important class that they take because the most likely thing to happen to them is mortal peril. <laughs> yeah. So they're yeah. like... Umbridge is like, who would want to attack you? And they're like, uh, let me count the ways. Yeah, everyone, not even just Lord Voldemort, uh, maybe the spider monster that lives in the Forbidden Forest. Uh, maybe the uh, multiple teachers that have turned out to be agents of evil. <laughs> maybe the fucking house elves who are eventually going to rise up. And Professor Umbridge's take is really interesting because she's using the weaknesses of this school, the very real weaknesses that we have documented ad nauseum on this podcast, the poorly organized and executed teaching, the incredibly the incredibly haphazard staffing decisions, all of the things that we've said over and over like really don't work about Hogwarts. She's taking advantage of it in a really, really intelligent and very scary way. She's coming in and saying, you have not been taught well. And she's right. They have not been taught well. But instead of an agent of like positive change, she is going to make things worse. But she's taking advantage of Dumbledore's weakness as an educator in a way that like Dumbledore, it's like. He sort of left himself open to this. He super has. All of the teachers have. And the ministry Actually, I don't really know what Hogwarts' official relationship with the Ministry is. They it's seem to really have, unclear. They seem to have a, some level of control over Hogwarts, but not entirely. Uh, well, clearly, they're asserting more of that control by planting Umbridge there. Yeah, there's so, some. It seems like semi-independence, but yeah. the Ministry has like representatives on the board. I can't tell if it's a public school. No, first of I all. don't think it is. Yeah, so it's it's, it's like public. It seems like a public-private partnership. Yeah. I, I don't know. Like, I can't tell if they pay tuition. Fascinating that Fudge puts so much importance on indoctrinating students I mean, against he's, Dumbledore. He, he's really savvy in that way. Yeah. And the other thing is, I mean, so I just read a book, actually, a really good book of short stories, and a lot of it took place during the Chinese Cultural Revolution, and kids were, like, massively empowered during the Cultural Revolution to, like, tell on people. Like, the and you know, this happened, like, in Stalinist Russia as well. But, like, there were, like, youth revolution movements that, like, turned in their own parents and stuff. And so Fudge is really keying into, like, the power of kids to, like, overturn adult orders. She, like, deputizes all these fucking Slytherins and they're, like, much more effective enforcers than, like, other adults would be. As I was reading these chapters, I was kind of thinking about it in terms of this, like, these cultural revolutions that like use the sort of like untamed power of children to like really 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 go hard on ideologies and assert a lot of control and ultimately like a lot of violence over adults and the ministry is taking advantage of the knowledge that kids are like really good weapons against like a particular like world order education becomes the key political battleground in, it the, does. in in these books. And I think that's very true to life. I think that's a really smart choice. Right, well, they're where uh, universities are where the big like the culture wars are being fought. Absolutely. In 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 many ways. No, the politics of campus really matter. I mean, 
everything from like free speech to sexual assault like that is where we're having these conversations and where the real intellectual underpinnings of the conversations kind of spring from one question i have why is professor umbridge structuring the class the way she does where they're not actually using magic they're just reading from the books she's not I don't think at this point in Voldemort's employ, why does she seem to be deliberately undermining their ability to learn these spells? Because I think that she thinks by doing that, she will undermine the overall messaging that he's back. Okay. I think that she's trying to instill confidence that there are no dangers. She also doesn't fundamentally seem to believe that these are like skills that they need. Right. And I think that she wants to create an environment where the idea that you need defensive spells as a young person in everyday life is absurd and that's in order to undermine Dumbledore's narrative about like what the dangers really are and she also I think wants to strip Harry of his ability to be a successful like adversary I think the ministry probably wants Harry dead I mean clearly Clearly she does, and she sent the right. Dementors. So I think him. she's trying to deliberately de-skill him. Ugh. I know. I think this is a really important chapter also because up until this point, the Ministry's foul play has been very much directed explicitly against Harry, and now it's also involving the rest of the school. Yeah, it's hurting other kids. Mm-hmm. Because even if this is just targeted against Harry, it's... It's hurting everyone around him. I also think it's a ploy to sort of get the parent vote in a way. I think probably most Hogwarts parents would kind of be in the Mrs. Weasley camp of like, their children, they do not need to be participating in adult or wizard level defense against the dark arts. They just need to know. Like she's basically like, what you need to know is enough for your test. She's teaching to the test. Okay. Yeah. Well, we've seen it with Seamus's mom already. Yeah. Other parents are probably in Seamus's mom's camp. Yeah. It's sort of hypocritical of her, though, at the same time. I guess she's supposed to be such a traditionalist, and clearly defense against the dark arts is, like, core curriculum. <laughs> but Well, no, she's not a traditionalist. She says in her speech that she's like, there are things that have been traditions that we need to prune. Mm. And, and keep the best of... Keep the best and get rid of the bad. I don't know. Rowling's politics are, I can't quite tell what they are based on these books. She they're, also, they're kind of a mishmash. They're a mishmash. You know, because they're, in some ways these books are very, almost libertarian, because they're very skeptical of authority. Well, they're also very skeptical of the successful possibilities of, like, public education. She does seem like someone who hated school. Yes. Like, she comes across as a writer who deeply, deeply, deeply resented being sort of forced to learn certain things in school. Yeah. Which I think a lot of people probably really relate to. I super don't. But I get that that's like a perspective. Like the kind of we don't need no education, we don't need no thought control perspective. <laughs> but they're also, they're simultaneously, they're very worshipful of school and its possibilities. Well, they're very worshipful of sort of the like trappings of boarding school well Dumbledore's a hero yeah but not as an educator yeah I suppose so I don't know she just comes across as someone who despised most of her teachers I guess I guess maybe the message that's coming across is the most important things about school aren't 
what happened in the classroom, which, which I would probably... I would agree with. I would agree with to some extent, although what happens in the classroom also matters a great deal. Yeah. Um, you should learn in school. Yeah. So, I, I but, because, I mean, you know, we know Rowling herself is sort of a uh, progressive type, uh, like, as much as you can be for being, like, a billionaire author. Yeah, that's true. But, uh, yeah, these, these books are a little all over the map, you know? I think she's a little all over the map. I think we're seeing that lately. Yeah. So, anyway, who's your unsung hero? My unsung heroes are Dean Thomas and Parvati, who jump in to also challenge Professor Umbridge, not leaving Harry and Hermione hanging. Yeah, they do a good job. Mine is McGonagall, who I appreciate doesn't, lay into Harry about his behavior in Umbridge's class, but is really a realist and like helps him kind of think about how to navigate these waters in a way that I think she treats him kind of like an equal in this scene in Mm -hmm. a way I think is really helpful. And it's also nice to give people cookies. Yep. So way to go. absolutely agree with that. This week's episode is brought to you by Defensive Magical Theory by Wilbert Slinkhard. Super required reading. The audiobook clips that you heard are courtesy of Penguin Random House Audio. They are from Jim Dale's performance of Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix by J.K. Rowling. You can find us uh, across social media. We are on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Quibbler Podcast. You can also shoot us an owl at quibblerpodcast at gmail.com. Please go and subscribe to this podcast wherever you find your podcasts. And while you're there, leave us a rating and a review. You can also review us on Facebook if you would like. Reach out to us in whatever way you prefer and see fit. We read our tweets. We read our DMs. So send us what you want to send us. Next week, we will be reading the chapters called Detention with Dolores and Percy and Padfoot. So we'll talk to you then, friends. Thanks. Amigos. Look at today, groaned Ron. History of magic, double potions, divination, and double defense against the dark arts. Bin, Snape, Trelawney, and that Umbridge woman all in one day. That's the worst Monday I've ever seen. Uh-oh. Sounds like somebody's got a case of the Mondays. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. Look in them, Diamantus. Did you still I worry that it's wrong? What are you talking about, Hal? Still I wonder whether sorting may not bring the end, I fear. I don't know what you're talking about, Hal. Oh, no, the perils read the signs the warning history shows. For our Hogwarts is in danger from external deadly foes. Where the hell did you get that idea, Hal? can it know if the school's in danger if it's a hat? I have no idea, said nearly headless Nick. <laughs>